Hi there, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. Today, we're speaking about Waste of a Nation, Garbage and Growth in India, a book by Asadoran and Robin Jeffrey. The book is published by Harvard University Press in 2018. Is India facing a waste crisis? As its population, cities and consumption grows, what are the implications for the health, well-being and everyday lives of Indians? To find out the answer, we talk to the two authors. Asa Doran is Associate Professor of Anthropology and South Asia at Australian Uni- National University and Robin Jeffries, Emeritus Professor at La Trobe University and Australian National University. We're going to be co-hosting the podcast today. My name is Ian Cook and I'm here with Yuli Pertzel. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Uh, so earlier on, I called up Asa to speak with him while Yuli called with Robin face-to-face in the UK. So first we'll hear my conversation with Asa and then Yuli will speak with Robin after that. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Okay, so my first question is the big question, um, I suppose, that drives um, your book is, is India facing a waste crisis? Um, yes, I think it is facing a waste crisis in manifold ways. And this crisis is also an incremental one. I mean, we've seen the air pollution in major Indian cities. We know already of the water pollution, the industrial factory construction debris and all the consumer driven pollution that is happening is all about different forms of waste. And I think that that crisis is involves reducing, containing and domesticating that waste, domesticating, you could call recycling the waste. And that really requires a political will beyond the simple top-down approach and uh, photo ops that some government officials like to uh, to have. And it seems to me like this waste crisis is very much about enforcing the regulations. In some cases, there are regulations, but there's no enforcements. Um, I'm thinking, for instance, of the tanneries along the Ganges or, say, the sewage flowing into the river in Varanasi, where I did a lot of my field work. And actually, Varanasi is the prime minister's constituency, and recently it was voted as one of the filthiest cities in, Varna- in India itself. So yes, there is a crisis, and the crisis has to do with the, the fact that India is, the population, the density is incredibly high. Uh, the volume of waste has increased since uh, the, the economy was liberalized. And this, these, these are the things that are driving it. And uh, uh, alongside the question of who has to deal with that waste, which we know that, uh, of course, it's the uh, downtrodden, the oppressed, the lower caste, the disadvantaged people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how, how did we get to this point? Uh, what's the history behind this uh, waste crisis? Well, I think with liberalization of the economy uh, since 1991, uh, waste was turbocharged, as it were, generating new volumes of waste from mines, uh, factories and agricultural industries. Solid waste also came, comes from homes, of course, from businesses, and the liquid waste from sewage, opendification, and industrial effluents that are dumped into lakes, rivers, and the ocean from expanding towns and cities in India, because India is an urbanizing country. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, you, you bring up this idea in the introduction of the book about a, a binding crisis. Um, what do you mean by a binding crisis and, and why do you think it's important for helping us understand you know, the current waste situation and, and what might happen in the future? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that the, the notion of a binding crisis is really about what, what, what is the potential of a crisis to achieve? And we argue that in some instances, 
It demonstrated the potential to bind different classes of citizens for a common goal, um, especially when responding to a disaster like uh, waste and waste management. So take, for instance, again, air pollution, which may choke the poor, but the rich too are coughing, right? Uh, their children too are exposed to this air pollution and they have respiratory diseases. And it also affects business and tourism. People don't want to come to India. Uh, even, I mean, a, a couple of years ago, embassies were closed down as a result of the air pollution and uh, productivity was reduced. In other words, I think really no one can escape this kind of binding crisis. And it has the potential to drive change. I mean, I was just thinking about uh, China's recent announcement about uh, the massive environmental overhaul that they're trying to do in an effort to curb the air pollution in their major cities. Do you remember the, the Beijing Olympics? But now they're actually sending thousands of supervisors to ensure that regulation is adhered to and, and also to uncover the kind of structural and industrial problems to do with waste. So I'm not... I don't think we need to romanticize crisis. A lot of times crisis actually affects the poor and the dispossessed in the most, uh, uh, um, in the most uh, uh, disastrous way. But there are instances, uh, like even, even if you think about 100, 150 years ago, the great stink in London in uh, 1858, which hit the city and caused the parliament to act and legislated you know, for, for things to, to happen in terms of sewer systems and, and, and improving the quality that, uh, uh, of sewage that followed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned this case in China where they're sending people to in, enforce um, regulations. It made me think a little bit about, you know, attitude towards waste. Um, and as someone who, you know, we get sort of socially conditioned in school in the UK, but from a very young age, we get, I can even remember the the rhyme the teachers used to say to us, like, pick it up, put it in, put it in the litter bin. We used to get told that in school and go out and like put our rubbish in the rubbish bin. And when I'm, when I'm uh, in India, very often I, I spend time with door-to-door salespeople going around and then people would just get, I mean, the, the salespeople just get whatever they've been drinking or eating and just throw it on the floor and they would laugh at me because I would always take it, <laughs> take it home with me and put it somewhere. Although who knows what actually happens to that way in the end it might also just get dumped somewhere but um it leads me to think like is it is it a question like to solve this crisis or, or to um in some way um curb the biggest effects of the crisis is, is it also a question of people's attitude towards waste that needs to be changed i do think so i think that uh, like you just said there the attitude or the, the the behavioral change can come from different angles or from different uh, quarters of the society but the main thing that we emphasize is that in in the majority of cases, the people who are charged with dealing with this waste are the Dalits or the low castes and the disadvantaged, the, the landless laborers that come mm-hmm. into the cities, the people who work in the informal economies and recycle this waste in very toxic ways, unprotected with a lot of occupational hazards. So these people, we argue, need to have some kind of reward, some kind of dignity, and some kind of recognition by the authorities that they are the actual recyclers. In many ways, what happens, it's, it's almost like, in, in the terms of the cultural attitude, it's, it's like assigning risk. The Indian caste system, in order to for the upper caste to maintain their purity, someone has to take the waste away, take the pollution, the ritual pollution away, right? Mm-hmm. And these are the people who are the Adalits, the untouchables. They're the ones who are the receptacles of pollution, as it were, and they're the ones who neutralize it, and the others can can uh, get away scot-free. So 
we we have to get to and understand that we're all implicated in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Higher classes, higher castes, um, people from all quarters of life, and even even the poor themselves, who now increasingly rely on the fast-moving consumer goods economy. You know, those small sachets of shampoo or pan masala or laundry uh, uh, detergents, and so they don't have places where they can actually cook for themselves. They're in these slums or these uh, huts in the urban centers. They rely on all these disposable materials. This muggy noodles is a classic example, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not that it's only the rich that excrete and waste. Everyone is implicated in this uh, uh, waste economy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thanks. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the chapters in a little bit more detail. Um, and then in the second half of the podcast, uh, my colleague Yuli Pertel is going to speak with your co-author, um, Robin Jeffrey, about the, some other chapters of the book. But before we, in our conversation, get into the chapters, um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? So what's your academic background and how did you end up writing a book about waste with a historian? Right. Well, I uh, I originally went to India uh, when after the army. I, I'm originally from Israel, and I, I was kind of captivated by by the country, and I kept coming back. And I was uh, very interested in a place called Varanasi, which is in uh, North India. And I was uh, uh, um, working initially on the river people who live along the have a living relationship with the river. And of course, we know that the river Ganges or Ganga, as it's called is a very polluted river and this kind of tensions that exist where a river is considered pure ritually, but it is extremely polluted uh, physically from whether it's the tanneries that come from uh, the, the north or whether it's the sewage that is discharged into the, the waters of uh, the river. So the question of environment and waste was always something that kind of occupied me at the time when I wrote that. But also um, something that was I found quite fascinating when I was uh, working with these uh, boat people is that they had a, a, a this seemingly innocuous device, the mobile phone came into their lives, and I decided to to, um, to think about what, what what are the effects of the mobile phone on those social relations on the cultural attitudes on their economic relations and uh, Robin Jeffrey, who is a media expert and a historian, was equally interested in this arrival of the mobile phone to India. We wrote this book called The Great Indian Mobile Phone. Mm -hmm. And uh, once we wrote that book, we were exposed to a a variety of issues that were, uh, we didn't anticipate as you do when you write a book. Right, uh, Robin Jeffrey, the historian, he, he's he's got a macro perspective, a, a comparative sweep, and, and and analytical capabilities that were very interesting for me as an anthropologist who kind of narrowed down and hones onto a particular locale. And I was looking at the kind of everyday relationships that these people have with the mobile phone in different areas, and I uh, and I was. Uh, uh, I realized that people, especially boatmen and others, poor people, they don't have the purchasing power that we have in the so-called West. They can't abide by this planned obsolescence that we do or the throwaway society in the same fashion that we do. And they constantly upgrade their mobiles and regenerate it and, and give it a new lease of life with all these repair people that were saturating the streets of North India. And when I was uh, doing ethnographic work with the repairmen, the mysteries, I also realized that a lot of these mobile phones 
uh, that that are seemingly defunct have an afterlife. And uh, uh, I remember even working in the farm market in Delhi and and seeing how after a mobile phone has been uh, uh, um, reimagined and new parts put into it and a new lease of life given to it, the old mobile phones, the dead mobile phones, someone was walking around in the market and picking them up. And I was wondering, what is going on here with all this uh, electronic waste? And um, where does it end up? And uh, I, I started following that trail and realized there's a whole electronic waste economy in India that's burgeoning as a result of the new uh, digital or new media economy, the computers, the mobile phones, and so on. And so I came to uh, Robin Jeffrey and I said, after we wrote the book on the mobile phone, there is an issue here with waste. Let's let's look at this. This is this is fascinating. There's a question here we have to answer. What is going on with India's waste economies? Mm-hmm. Great, that's great. I think every uh, every anthropologist that have a historian friend to write with, it's uh, it makes for a great uh, collaboration. Both that book uh, and this book. Uh, and let's let's turn to the the book more directly and and touch on something that you've already mentioned already, and that's caste. And that's the it's, it's throughout the book, but it's a focus really in chapter three. And when reading this chapter, I was reminded of a story I was told um, when I do when I was do one doing one stint of field work in Mangalore by an old Catholic man. And um, very often, if you're a foreigner in India, you know people want to uh, volunteer you reasons why India isn't developed. You know, and very often it makes me feel very uncomfortable in a sort of a, a colonial or post-colonial way because people yeah, always tell yeah, me, yeah. "Oh, it was better during the British. It was better during the British." And then he started to tell me this story um, about the British times, and I was bracing myself to say, "Actually, it's more complicated." But his story was interesting it stuck with me because he told me how in 1946 or 1947 uh, um, a British Royal Naval officer faced some issues with some Brahmin sailors he had um, under him and they were refusing to clean their latrines they kept telling him it was the work of the untouchables the Dalits the the those um, who were outcasts and um, the officer found this really hard and so he found two untouchable men and he brought them aboard to clean the toilets and they stayed on board the boat and when the boat reached the south coast of the UK the men were given shore leave and the two Dalit men they found the nearest pub met two women and then they got married the next day seemingly there was a shortage of men in the UK at the time of course after the second world war and uh, you know they, they left and the Brahmins had to go back and clean their toilets maybe the story isn't true but I, I, I want it to be true and, uh, and it was interesting that the man yeah. told me this <laughs> <laughs> and I, I thought of it when I was reading your chapter, and so I thought I could ask you uh, ask you about this. You know, is the was the Catholic man from Mangalore right? You know, does caste hinder India's ability to solve, in this case, the waste crisis in regards to sewage? But you know, wider in terms of development. Well, I think you're right. It's interesting to think about the comparative angle. Mm-hmm. The rest means that India does not have a tradition, say, for example, like China or Japan or even the Netherlands, where, you know, human waste was a valuable product. It was harvested and sold. Uh, in India, there is this kind of intense revulsion that is against things or people that are viewed as ritually polluting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's someone else's pollution that needs to be taken away. And it's, it's, it's in India, I think it's... It's a very, it very much exists, and it's not, it's not only in vote banks, and it's not only in identity politics. It's very much at the level of everyday life, and it's unique in that sense, and its complexity, both and in, in, in intensity. So, those who work in garbage and waste in India, 
um, um, they are seen as lowly people. Unlike, say, a friend of mine, his son finished, you know, finished uh, high school recently, and he went to uh, work uh, for uh, for a garbage company to um, with a local uh, garbage truck because it pays well. It's not it, it's mm-hmm. not seen as a bad thing to do. It it's, it's working outdoors. It does not have too many rules. They've got protection gear. Whereas in India, those who deal with waste and especially human waste, it it it, it has it necessarily has to do with ideas about caste and ritual purity that kind of predisposes these people in a sense, right, to deal with these. Uh, uh, um, Polluted materials and polluted things, the low caste people, the Dalits, who are destined by by virtue of their birth to uh, to work with waste, whether it's material or human waste. So I think it's very much part of the problem, and that is why we continuously, in every chapter, actually, we come back to the question of caste and the fact that it needs to be addressed at, at all levels of society. One of the other things I really liked about your book was that it had lots of um, really wonderful and highly re- revealing anecdotes, um, lots of rich detail. And one of them involves you becoming intrigued when you find when you found a bunch of boys um, collecting human hair out of the waste. Um, and I think even that's a, that's enough set up for the listeners at home. You know, wh- why were the boys collecting hair, and what does it tell us about chains of recycling and value and so on? In general terms, I think mm-hmm. that. For waste to gain value, it needs space, right? It needs space and it, needs, it always needs to be on the move. Mm-hmm. This is what propels that waste chain. And the tension in, is, there, is there that the value accrued is also because the material recycles where it travels up that waste chain and gains value, while the people who collect that material are often less mobile, right? They remain stranded at the bottom of the chain or the pyramid, as it were. Now, in India, there's an enormous pool of workers that want employment under almost any conditions. Uh, we've already spoken about them. And, and this gives India that potential to collect and sort and process waste in, in incredible ways that would be difficult to uh, reproduce in other places in the world. But it also has a kind of weakness because cheap labor becomes a magnet for uh, discards and from elsewhere in the world. So Robin and I speak about the kind of shipping industry and how all those ships are beached in India for recycling. And what we try to juxtapose is the hair economy, which is a, a kind of a reversal, as it were, because hair from India, hair brushings from India are exported to the so-called West for wigs and so on. I, uh, I was uh, walking around with these waste pickers in the outskirts of Varanasi, and by around midday, they unpacked the gunny sacks that they were uh, picking up all the stuff, whether it was shoes or cassette tapes or henna bottles or what have you, plastic, uh, 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 iron, paper. And uh, these are ordinary things, you know, that they use and they come back to life under all of sorts of mysterious forces. And uh, one of these things that I, I noticed is that they, they, they kind of picked hair from 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 their daily uh, harvest they put it in a in a small container and i was asking them what are you doing with this scraggy hair where did you find it uh, it was is wound around different materials or in the gutters and and what have you and they said to me yeah we take it we wash it 
And then we sell it to a Bengali uh, hair trader who, uh, who has his office or two rooms nearby in the, in the, in a slum around the area. And then I, I, I followed that and I went to visit the Bengali trader himself and uh, realized that he is specifically his main business is the hair trade and he packs it up, he cleans it, he segregates it further, uh, sorts it further, refines it, and then sends it off to the various journeys that it goes to. And I continued to follow the hair trade to different uh, mid-size wholesalers in Delhi and I reached the so-called king of hair, <laughs> uh, the self-styled king of hair in Delhi, who's... Um, who, who at the time I was told I would never be able to visit his factory. But then um, I called and I, I spoke with his brother in, uh, I think it was his brother in Hindi, and he, he's, he sent his Mercedes to pick me up from my guest house. And I realized that he has a big business. Indeed, he was exporting 60 tons of waste hair a month and even received a prize from the president of India, export prize. And bear in mind, this is not this, the famous temple hair of South India, which we all know is very prestigious because Indian hair is considered a very good quality hair. I'm talking about waste hair. And this is, I guess, what what um, what is fascinating for an anthropologist because these kind of hair brushings are... are almost de decontextualized and they re-enter the kind of recycling track. It goes from completely worthless to a highly prized, esteemed uh, 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 material and that goes through this kind of uh, journey, this transmutation like an alchemy and it turns into uh, uh, almost gold in terms of the price that it fetches in um, various places in the West as uh, as it goes into the wig industry and so on. So the story of hair could be almost seen like Indian cosmology transformed into global capitalism, you know. The ritual beliefs and practices associated with bodily hair in India are complex and a lot of times it's considered polluted and they're implicated in the decline and rehabilitation of the person, whether it's a South Indian devotee or a polluted widow in Varanasi. Uh, hair is a personal, very human story uh, in the afterlife of 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 the the human being and this 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 life cycle of, of material is something that i i was very interested in, in in tracking and seeing how hair accumulates value and i guess what was also fascinating for me is because hair has such a polluting connotations in the indian context when you look at when i went to visit the factory in delhi it's almost like a, a Fordian organization. The hair itself is being refined and processed and measured, enumerated, weighted. It's stripped out of its previous life by this kind of capitalist Fordist process and re-enters this commodification where it can then be put into boxes. And I remember seeing in the factories dozens and dozens of boxes it continuously in different rooms different people were doing different things in order to kind of prime this hair for export so um that 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 for us was a, a really good example of how in the waste chain you have even things that we don't necessarily um, recognize as potentially recyclable uh, arriving at this kind of uh, uh, end end of chain commodity that sells for over $300 a kilo 
in its uh, raw form in uh, Western countries. Mm-hmm. It's, it's absolutely, absolutely fascinating. Um, we're going to hand over in a minute to, to Robin and Yuli. But before we do that, can you tell us what you're working on now, now that this book is out? As it almost always happens with anthropologists, something leads to another. And at some point, uh, I was uh, working in uh, Hyderabad and I heard about these uh, pharmaceutical companies. I mean, Hyderabad is the pharmaceutical capital of India. And uh, a lot of pharmaceuticals, because antibiotics is now considered uh, unprofitable to produce in Western, so-called Western countries, they've offshored it to India uh, with special economic zones, and India provides uh, uh, far better conditions with cheap labor, but also it's not as regulated as you would want. So you have this kind of rapidly expanding pharmaceutical industry, but this also means that a lot of medications, a lot of these antibiotic factories are discharging antibiotic-laden waste into the environment. And I was going around and looking at these this waste flowing into the villages, and it, it, it actually harms the fields, it harms the people, it creates what we call antimicrobial resistance, or it generates and boosts these uh, multi-resistant organisms, bacteria that have developed resistance to all available antibiotics, as a result, partly, of this kind of uh, uh, globalization, the comparative advantage, so-called, and the offshoring of the antibiotic industry. And of course, there's other reasons why India has become such a center point for uh, for these uh, multi-resistant organisms. So this, for me, is a really interesting and urgent issue to look at because, um, you know, so, the so-called superbugs, these uh, resistant organisms, they don't discriminate. They don't care what caste you are, what class you are. And they also move boundaries, you know. They move from place to place with goods, people, food. So um, in, in, in some ways, we come full circle. This could eventuate as another binding crisis, as it were. Um, and that's what I'm uh, looking into. Wow, it's uh, yeah, urgent, important, and, and and really interesting. We look forward to reading the fruits of that sometime in the future. Thanks once again, Asa, for coming on New Books in South Asian Studies. Thank you very much for having me. Hi, Robin. Thank you for joining me on this episode of New Books in South Asian Studies. Thank you for asking me. Before we do our bit of discussing the book... Can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you came to co-author now your second book uh, with an anthropologist? Uh, I suppose I'm a, a wannabe anthropologist uh, and a, a, a sort of historian, but my first job was as a sports writer on a small-town newspaper. And I've always been interested in newspapers, but I was trained as a historian of India, particularly Kerala at one stage, and a little bit of Punjab. Uh, Eventually, though, I, I wrote a book about Indian newspapers, Indian language newspapers, so I came back to the media. And then by the early 2000s, both my friend Asadoran and I were so fascinated by mobile phones, we tried to write a book, or we did write a book about mobile phones and how they'd come to India. And in doing that, uh, we got interested in what happened to dead mobile phones, what happened to the mobile phone when it turned up its little digital toes and died. And Asa 
followed some leads in Delhi about six or seven years ago and was sent to Silampur, which is a suburb on the outskirts of Delhi, where he was told there was electronic waste recycling. And he had such memorable experiences, horrifying experiences of little children working over hot saucepans with mobile phones in them to soften the plastic so that the valuable pieces of metal could be picked out. Um, he found that so memorable, horrifying, that he came back and said, look, we've got to do a book about garbage. And I wasn't very impressed at that stage. But he eventually convinced me, and I've thrown myself wholeheartedly into waste and garbage for the last five years that we've been working on this particular project. And with an excellent uh, result, of course. Um, can you tell us a bit about um, what technology and political campaigns like Swatch Bharat can uh, do for India's waste problem? Can it solve? Yes, Swatch Bharat is a huge investment of money and also a political capital because the the new Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, four years ago made it a signature campaign. And he needn't, he, there were lots of other things you could have made one of your signature campaigns, but he chose uh, this clean India enterprise. And consequently, because he is all in all in the government he leads and is still extremely popular with uh, a large section of the Indian population, the program has had uh, media emphasis and emphasis in funds and pressure on bureaucrats. Now, the downside of this is that it's top down. It's, it's driven from the top. Um, it means that bureaucrats are called on to meet targets. If you go to the Swatchbot website, you'll see that both the urban website and the rural website have tickers that will tell you how many toilets are being built. And the ticker rolls over like uh, polling results on an election night in Australia or the United Kingdom, where you see the ticker telling you constantly how many scores have been racked up. And this is all very well, but as any Indian bureaucrat knows and will tell you, uh, it's not difficult to meet targets. It's difficult to meet real to make real change happen. So you can build many thousands of toilets, but are they good toilets and will they be used? So on the the toilet side of Swatch Bharat has got, I think, most of the attention in the media because it is countable and it's photo it's photographic. If there's a, a badly built toilet that's falling down, you can take a photograph of it. If there's a beautiful toilet block that looks pristine, you can take a photo of that. So the uh, the toilet side has got a lot of emphasis. And I I feel that the emphasis has been, uh, could have been, the funding could have been distributed otherwise. That is, a, a lot more of the funding in Swatch Bharat should be going and should have gone into demonstration, education, and relentless follow-up. Elsewhere in the world where we see this kind of uh, attempt to eliminate open defecation being prosecuted, the successful campaign seemed to involve relentless follow-up for two or three years after um, a new system of toilet and human excrement manage, uh, management is instituted in a locality in a village. It means people coming back every three or four months looking at a toilet and seeing that it's not working and fixing it, but more than that, showing local people how easy it is to fix it, if indeed it is easy at all. So I think that demonstration and education side is crucial, and that's the underestimated side, partly, of course, because it's harder. It involves 
human beings doing uh, not particularly tasteful work on a daily basis to uh, show to uh, particularly rural people the advantages of maintain using, maintaining, and building first uh, more effective ways of managing human waste. Um, related to this, can you also tell us a little bit about the role that local governments can play in dealing with waste? Well, local go I think the other uh, element that's become very clear in the Swatch Bharat campaign and may long term be a benefit um, is that local governments are, I think, terribly underpowered. That would be true, I think, of many places in the world. Certainly in the United Kingdom, people will tell you that local governments get the responsibility for carrying out a great many tasks, but don't have the resources to do that. And those resources are tend to be held back. In the case of India, they're held back by state governments who would prefer to be the, uh, the donors and be perceived to be the donors of benefits, rather than transferring large amounts straight off the top of state budgets to local government authorities, which happens in a couple of states. But rather than doing that, the state government likes to be the munific munificent giver of gifts to potential voters. State governments, too, in a federal system, really have no interest in creating rivals at the local level, that is, rival politicians who might come up and become more powerful in fact, or have more influence, more spending power than uh, representatives in the state government. So that there are real governmental problems here. Um, the other uh, difficulty, I think, with Indian local government is that there's, because of the tradition it inherited from the British, where local government was seen as a way of transferring responsibility for the British, away from the imperial power to Indian citizens, and thereby giving them responsibility, but also making them take the blame when local government services weren't provided. And I think that uh, attitude still endures. So not many young people would see a career in local government as particularly attractive, as would not be the case in Australia or Canada or the United States where people do make careers in local government, move from one authority to another and build up over a 20-year career a knowledge of how you write grants, how the authorities in your state or your jurisdiction operate in relation to local governments. In India, many people uh, come into local government only briefly while they're on their way to something else or they get stuck there at a very low level where the skills they acquire never really permeate uh, to a wider local government set of people. Um, this also brings us to the next to my next question, um, which is about the various humans in the various occupational roles and what are their different stakes in India's waste management. Yes, I think one of the dilemmas is that. Uh, hundreds of thousands, I think probably between five and ten million people every day in some way make a living off waste. But there are various degrees of that making a living. There are some perhaps at the better end of the, the, the uh, better looked after end of the scale who are actually employees of local government authorities and they 
often, or occasionally anyway, will get housing provided as part of that, and they will have a, a regular salary that should be paid, and but often isn't. Now, that would be the, the most secure end of it. At the very other extreme, and then there are levels in between, but at the other extreme are people who have nothing but forage for what they can find each day, sell what they can find, and that's how they live. And the men may some days work and earn a little money by this kind of foraging, but then often um, the men will go off and spend it on, on liquor for a couple of days and not work. So it's it's not a systematic attitude. Women, I, I, we've heard over and over again, are different because women drinking is much, much, much less common in India, and women have responsibility for children, and that responsibility is a, a huge uh, incentive to regular regular attendance, regular work, and of course regularly feeding your kids. So though that at the end of the actual hands-on work on waste, there are various categories or various um, uh, various categories of people doing this work. Then as you move up the scale, there are the kabariwalas, the waste collectors, what in the old days in England were called rag and bone men, who collect waste, sort it, and pass it up the chain to the point where somebody else can begin to regard, will treat waste not as something that's thrown away, but as product that can be turned into something else, whether it's wigs made out of human hair or plastic bottles made into door frames and park benches and so on. But that process uh, is a, another stage. Another category of people, of course, are the environmentalists, the scientists, the professionals who have a, a knowledge of the science of urban urban management, of how you run a, a scientific landfill, because landfills are probably unavoidable, and they can be built so that they recycle and reclaim a lot of material, but also that they mitigate the evil that a badly run dump creates, the, the, the toxins that it releases both into the atmosphere and into the groundwater. Thank you. Um, finally, uh, may I ask you, do you have anything lined up? What, I, what is your next uh, project? Well, I've, I mean, I'm, I'm ancient, so I should, <laughs> my next project is tomorrow in some ways. But no, I, uh, I've got a book that I hope to write and I've talked about for years and years and a lot of the research is done, which would tentatively be called Slices of India. And it would use a technique that was used for the Australian bicentennial history in 1988, where they took a 50-year periods and explored in great detail the year 1788, the year 1838. Only I would use the years of the Kummela, which is an irregular, astrologically-based festival, the Mahakum in Allahabad. And those are wonderful years, to, and I'd use them to try to write a history of India in the late 20th and early 21st century, beginning in 1942 and ending, well, it may end with the next Kum, which I think is about three years away. That sounds very exciting. It was lovely to have you on the podcast. Um, in particular, it was great to have the chance to uh, speak to you in person. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much. And much better to do face-to-face -face than over a telephone line. Thank exactly. You. After the interview was over, Robin and I continued to chat with the recorder on. Some of the conversation was so fascinating, I couldn't resist including it here. 
we didn't talk about uh, the the technology of toilet building, for example. Um, the uh, the fact that no one has invented the perfect toilet, uh, and the perfect toilet, of course, won't need sewers because it's very very difficult to sewer a modern city once it's been built without an elaborate sewer system put in initially and there are lots of fascinating experiments trying to build toilets that work with purifying membranes and leave you with just a little bag to be put out the way people in the old days used to put out the ashes from their uh, fires um, the ideal toilet you'd end up at the end of each week or fortnight with just a little bag and you'd put it out for the dustman and it would make beautiful compost somewhere else or indeed you could use it for compost in your own garden if you were so lucky so that's the that's the kind of magic model but nobody has quite perfected that all of these systems would require maintenance and a lot of buy-in from the actual users which is going to be hard in India because uh, there are deeper prejudices I think against dealing with anything waste anything tainted in some way and particularly uh, human excrement so uh, the challenge of the perfect toilet is one that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and many others are working on, but nobody's quite cracked it yet, I think. I remember last summer I overheard the conversation about this, yeah. not not related to India at all. Someone said, can you build a compost toilet where city girls will be happy to go? Yes, <laughs> yes exactly, exactly. The, uh, um, there are quite good um, toilets... Uh, in a number used in a number of places now i think the new york zoo has a very good composting toilet situation but they have space to do it and they have trained people who are handling the material every day and that uh, that technique that particular toilet technique which i think was devised in sweden 70 years ago um, that's used in australia too in national parks and nature reserves and so on but it really does require space it requires um, particular kinds of containers and it requires people who understand it and are prepared to maintain it on a daily basis. And is this the membrane toilet that you also mentioned in your book? or No, th this isn't a membrane. The, the one I'm talking about is not a membrane toilet. Um, it's not... Is that the one that has the name Ecosan? Um, but it's... Are the two-chamber one? The two-chamber and then uh, constant... Uh, putting of ash or a, a kind of composting accelerant in with the material. But the membrane toilet is very, very neat. But it, and the, I think it's being developed by a, a water uh, institute based in Sussex. I, I think we talk about it a little in the book. And uh, that one would be wonderful. And their idea is that this could become a business that every fortnight a person would call it your door and would remove the bag that was in your toilet, replace it, and would have for his business a valuable product as well as a fee from the householder for having come and maintained the, maintained the toilet. Now that's a lovely idea, but again, take, it will take education and it's hard to imagine this happening in an Indian slum. It just... It, it would require a, a buy-in on the part of the users of the toilet that would be very hard to achieve without a powerful kind of education campaign and a relentless maintenance demonstration campaign. But another issue which I'm kind of trying to deal with in my work is uh, that the idea... 
if we play with the idea that we might come to the right technology that would solve the problem that would eventually reduce the human um, or the labor power mm. that's needed. And there's, I seem to see two kinds of arguments here. One where it says, let people have their livelihoods in waste because, uh, because that's how they live. And then the other, uh, kind of side of the argument is that for ecological and health reasons, you should develop better technology and, uh, sort of save the different kind of humans who are involved in, in this kind of work from the risks of it. And I'm not really managing to wrap my head around this kind yeah, of... Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's anything... The idea that uh, a mod modern cities, and India is becoming increasingly urban if we talk especially about India, but the idea that modern cities can simply survive on the ad hoc and that the people who do the ad hoc waste picking, that is, the freelancers who pick some days and maybe not in others... I don't think that's realistic for either the health of the people actually doing the work or for the city as a whole, for the community as a whole. Now, the technology, where I think India has an advantage is that recycling demands a lot of work, thorough recycling. Why it's not done in places like the United States or Australia is because the labor is too expensive to do it. Now, it's not a particularly glamorous task, uh, segregating eight different colors of plastic bottles so that you maximize the value of each bottle and its color. But nevertheless, it, it is a remunerative task and somebody can make, there's money to be made out of it. Now to regularize that, to guarantee a reasonable wage for the people doing it, and most important of all, to increasingly reinforce the idea that their children need not do this, that there are going to be schools available, midday meals available, where the children of people who are doing this arduous and not particularly exciting work uh, are going to have the opportunity to think about doing other things in their lives. So if one were trying to imagine a very rosy, spectacled vision, you would see the current waste-picking Catter at the very end of the scale, the freelancers who just find what they can each day, being having increasing opportunities to work in better conditions with better um, better amenities and better equipment, with perhaps even a little bit of training along the way, in better conditions with a, a regular fair salary, and with behind them the schools that their kids ought to go to and the health services that will keep most of the babies healthy. That would end then, as you move up the scale, increasing levels of technology introduced so that when you get to sewage treatment plants, um, which you will have to have in great cities, um, that those sewage treatment plants are using the best, latest technology and they're maintaining it because that's how you keep a city's, it's one of the ways you keep a city's water pure. So one can as I say, with a very rosy spectacle view, see a way of trying to absorb the people at the very lowest end of the rag picking into a more systematic method that also in, ensures better collection and better reuse of the products that are collected. I just read this morning as I came out in the newsletter of the one of the Australian Associations of Waste Management that uh, there's been a new um, 
waste processing plant opened in a suburb of Sydney. And the, the uh, people backing this plant say that they what they're trying to do is not push waste, they're trying to pull product. Mm-hmm. And that is they reckon they have a system that will allow them, they're proposing to you, among the things they will work on is stormwater drains. And apparently there's a great deal of material that goes into stormwater drains. The idea is to capture that material as part of their product and separate the plastic from the glass from the paper and turn it into material of value. And of course the Chinese ban on the import of waste is going to accelerate this because it is going to make doing it locally uh, a more value, well there's going to be more uh, reward for doing this kind of thing locally. So as I say, that's how you can imagine dealing with this awful problem that you put people out of work. Thanks so much for listening to New Books in South Asian Studies. I've been your host, Ian Cook. And I've been your host, Yuli Perza. Today, we've been speaking about waste of a nation, garbage and growth in India. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and we hope you listen again next time. Ta-ra! Bye-bye.